action. Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. He's a big movies think about big men in tights. You should have got us. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f are the Knutsons? We like movies. Hello, everybody. Welcome to We Like Movies, your favorite semi-monthly pro-movie pop culture podcast where we cover everything from a... Uh, New stuff, although there isn't really any new stuff nowadays, to deep dive historical retrospectives. And today we are very proud to introduce a new feature that we'll get to in a second. I'm your host, Oscar Dahl, I'm coming to you from beautiful, warm Seattle, Washington, and I'm joined by my good friend, Matthew Knutson in Los Angeles. And Matt, do you want to introduce our guest today? We're also joined by our good friend and uh, frequent guest contributor, Dan Kelly, coming to us from San Francisco, I believe. Yep, San Francisco. I'm glad that I made the uh, step up to frequent contributor as well. <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're three-timers club now. Am I missing one? James Bond, Any Given Sunday, and now three. Am I missing a fourth one? Yeah, I mean, other than the year-end spectacular thing that we did a few yes. months back. I think that counts. All right, you're part of the four-timers club in that case. Yeah, I really wanted Dan to be a part of this particular episode because there was a certain film I was looking forward to talking about, and for some reason, even though I don't know if we've ever even if we've ever even discussed it, it just rang out to me as a as a Dan Kelly movie, and I mean that as a huge compliment. But before we get into that, I would like to, if you will both indulge me, I'd like to start this episode off with the, the reading of a poem by the great William Friedkin. Uh, it's untitled. In the bottomless silence, without warning, a curtain slowly ascends, revealing a midnight dawn, a whisper of chill wind, a white sun eclipsed by pale yellow moon, rumor of distant thunder trembles along the edge of the galaxy, cascading down infinite corridors of burning mirrors reflecting and re-reflecting momentous oceans of stampeding wild horses. Glass shatters, shrieks, and spins away, becoming clusters of starfall that scatter from hidden places, pulsating, relentless, like a recurring nightmare. Centaurs throb within the blood, crossing arteries of storming cavalries that crash through the top of your head, recycle and recur, again and again, reminding of white suns eclipsing oceans of stars shrieking through the midnight dawn, never ending, without warning. That, that poem was first published on the back of the original Sorcerer soundtrack album written by the great Tangerine Dream. And I guess that's the uh, stream of consciousness that going on inside Friedkin's head when he thinks about this film and its soundtrack. That was when he was doing a lot of cocaine, right? There's a pretty decent chance that everybody was doing a lot of cocaine at, leading up to and during the production of this film. I even read that while they were shooting in central Mexico, some of the cast members or some of the crew members actually had to be dismissed and sent home and replaced because the Mexican government found out about a lot of cocaine use. I think they just called it illicit drug use, but I presume it was cocaine use. The government allowed them to continue shooting, but the people who were identified as having brought cocaine into the country were dismissed and replaced. All right, Matt, I have to do my hostly duties. We should probably set up the movie we're talking about. <laughs> yes, exactly. And also <laughs> this new series that we're going to test the waters on today. We're going we're gonna to stroll over a rickety bridge of the podcast series and see if we get to the other side. <laughs> Tell me what this is all about, Matt. Tell me where this started. All right, so the working title of this new series uh, I've been referring to as the sub-canon. And we can workshop that here in real time uh, if we want to, because I'm certainly not married to it. But my idea was that I wanted to explore the lesser-known films from very famous directors that, in my opinion and in the opinion of whoever you know ends up nominating films that could be explored in this series, they are potentially the quintessential films of these directors. An alternate title I was kind of spitballing earlier this afternoon is the Apotheosis series. Now, Apotheosis would usually kind of refer to a magnum opus or like the best film from a filmmaker, or, you know, from, from an artist. But I'm not really interested in whether or not these are the best films from 
certain from these artists. I'm interested in whether or not these are the quintessential films, the defining films, if you will, the films that most speak to what's unique about these filmmakers. And today discussing a film like Sorcerer, which I actually do believe is secretly Friedkin's best film. I, I think it's the most sort of evocative and most instructive if you really want to like drill down on what's important about Friedkin and what's unique about Friedkin. Dan had floated the idea of referring to this series as B-sides, which I think is an interesting suggestion. I only push back on that because to me, B-sides refers to something that's inferior to the A-side. It, it refers to lesser works. Whereas I am not necessarily sure the films that I've thought of as being great examples for this particular series are lesser, necessarily. I'm, go- I'm going to side with Dan here a little bit. I kind of like B-sides just because... Side A is for the masses. It's for popular consumption. It's what's gonna. It's gonna. What's gonna play in Omaha, right? We need something that is, you know, from the artists themselves and what they think is most, you know, indicative of their work. And I feel like B sides brings that up. And I think apotheosis is a little wordy, but that's just me. <laughs> well, it's, it's yeah, man. The B sides are the for the uh, real fans. Maybe I have a reductive reading of the term B side. I just want to make it clear that, like, if we're gonna just keep exploring this metaphor, if his singles are The French Connection and The Exorcist, and maybe even To Live and Die in L.A., then this is the B side that is secretly superior to all of those films. Well, I mean, we could even call it something like deep cuts, right? Because isn't this a prerequisite for a movie year is one that is not considered the artist's either best work or most popular work, right? I think it should at least be a prerequisite for the series. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not really, I don't think people need us to chime in about Blade Runner or Alien anymore if we want to talk about Ridley Scott's, like, secret quintessential works. We don't need another podcast discussion about The Exorcist, but I do think we need one about Sorcerer. And... I, I think we're going to have to like nominate films and then we're going to have to sort of like see whether they hit certain certain criteria for us. Under your criteria, then it's very likely that a lot of great filmmakers will not have a movie that even makes sense for the series. Correct? Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> nobody. We don't need to talk about Schindler's List and Raiders of the Lost Ark again, you know, but I don't think Spielberg has a B-side quintessential apotheosis uh, subcanon film, whatever you want to call it, that makes sense for a series like this. I, 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 I think we need to like reverse engineer it. Like Empire of the Sun, right? We could, we could always find something in someone prolific that would kind of make sense, but I, I like where your head's at. Something that absolutely nails who this filmmaker is that is also not well known. And I and, and sort of in my just back of the na- back of the napkin, you know, like cocktail napkin back of the envelope sort of mission statement here, I just have oftentimes these are passion projects or films that are so personal and uniquely beholden to the filmmaker's sensibilities that they alienate audiences, at least initially. These are films that often get reevaluated years later or potentially achieve cult status, but this is not necessarily a series that is specifically about cult films. Yeah, and I like uh, the analogy of something like a deep cut or a B-side because it's similar to like lesser known tracks by a famous artist and we are the three guys in a record store yelling about things no one else has ever heard of. <laughs> yes, we are definitely Jack Black and uh, and John Cusack talking about why we're not allowed to uh, discuss tracks from the Big Chill soundtrack, for example, because <laughs> it's too obvious. The songs we're talking about can only be found on Japanese B-sides, you know, or EPs, <laughs> yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. But again, I'm also not necessarily, and by all means push back against this, I'm just not necessarily interested in things that are, like, aggressively obscure, you know? Like, it's, it's not like people haven't heard of this film. But I think that's probably an interesting segue into, like, the history of this movie, because a lot of people haven't seen it, and there are a couple of very good reasons for that, so... I'm guessing you've done your research I had never, on that. I had never seen this movie. Good, guys. I'd never good, seen good, it. good. And Dan, you had seen it before this, but I, I just feel like we've never really discussed it, at least not to the yeah, lengths that I we're going to. I probably sent you a text message like I did last night that said, Sorcerer is awesome, and that's it. I can't tell you how, how happy that made me because I didn't really know how you guys felt about this film, whether you'd seen it or not. It's very weird. It's very dark. It's obviously a, you know maybe a bit of an acquired taste for some. And when you sent me that text, even though it was a spoiler for this particular conversation, I was elated when you sent me a text that just said sorcerer rules. So if we just want to set the table here a little bit, in the 70s, 
the height of the new Hollywood or the American new wave, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Friedkin was obviously flying high on the success of uh, The French Connection, which was not only his breakout film. I think he was 33, 32, 33 when he won his Oscar for directing The French Connection. Uh, obviously a big kind of left field breakout hit. He follows that up two years later with The Exorcist, which completely changes the game, becomes a genre classic almost immediately, is also critically acclaimed. And so what's he going to follow up this one-two punch of these, you know, zeitgeisty films with? Uh, he decides he's going to explore a passion project, which is a remake of Georges-Henri Clouseau's seminal French action film, The Wages of Fear. Are either of you gentlemen familiar with The Wages of Fear? The book or the original film no sir only from the uh, wikipedia entry for sorcerer yeah ditto. <laughs> it's it's a little obvious it's you know it's like a film school staple it's like when you first take a european cinema class inevitably the wages of fear is going to come up I mean, it's a brilliant movie and it's a classic for a reason i rewatched it over the weekend and it's clearly very very influential but i'm not sure if it if it's aged as well as as sorcerer has um, I'm in the minority who thinks that Sorcerer is superior, which is probably a bit of um, blasphemy for, for many. But the point is that Freakin is a huge Clouseau fan, but he doesn't really want to remake Clouseau's film as much as he wants to adapt the source novel. And the first 25 minutes of this movie are where he deviates most from the original book and the original film, and that all that prologue stuff does not exist in either. That's a complete invention uh, by Friedkin and his co-writer. But it's a Sisyphean task for him to get this film made because he's the only one who thinks it's a good idea <laughs> that continued to snowball throughout the production. So he basically has to get Paramount and Universal to co-finance this thing in order to be able to put together the $20 million or so to get it made, which is a huge sum of money in 1977. Yeah, and he initially wanted... He was going for an all-star cast, right? He wanted Steve McQueen. He wanted uh, Mastriani. He wanted uh, who else? Well, it's funny that you should mention that, Oscar. I'm going to play a brief uh, snippet from the Friedkin Connection, which is uh, his wonderful <laughs> memoir that I read a number of years ago. And uh, he narrates it himself. I highly recommend it for anybody who's into this kind of stuff. He has a surprisingly soothing voice, this Friedkin. So let's see if this works. Now I had a dream cast of international movie stars and a script I loved. When the script was in good shape, I gave it to McQueen, who had recently left his wife, Neely, for Ally McGraw. Steve called me back within a week. This is the best script I've ever read, he began. I told him about Ecuador and the incredible locations we'd found. Can't you do it around here, he asked. I told him the locations in Ecuador would give the film an exotic background impossible to duplicate anywhere else. Here's my situation, he went on. You know about me and Allie. I can't leave her for a long shoot. You'll be shooting this thing for months, and I can't just bring her to Ecuador to hang out. She has her own career. I insisted it had to be Ecuador, even though Wasserman had told me Ecuador was out of the question. Okay, McQueen said. Write in a part for Allie. Well, you just told me it was the best script you ever read, I said. How do I put a woman in it? Well, make her an associate producer, he suggested, so she has a reason to be with me. Foolishly, I refused. How arrogant I was. I didn't know then what I've come to realize. A close-up of Steve McQueen was worth more than the most beautiful landscape in the world. Isn't it incredible to think of a, a Sliding Doors alternate universe wherein... Steve McQueen is in the Roy Scheider role. And we can get into how great Roy Scheider is in this film. And I think he is extraordinary in this movie. But the idea of Steve McQueen, who obviously would have been the bit, one of the biggest movie stars in the world at the time, true above the title star in such a dark and esoteric movie, to, to think that things could have been different, that this movie could have been a hit just based on the strength of McQueen. I just, as much as I love Scheider in this movie, I would love to see the version with McQueen and Mastroianni, who also had to drop out of the film for, for different reasons. But yes, that was the original intention. McQueen, Mastroianni, and uh, Lino Ventura. Lino Ventura was the third actor. So the only actor who was, uh, I was going to say McTiernan, who was Friedkin's first choice for one of the four principals was, uh, was an actor named Amadou, who plays uh, Kasim, the, uh, the terrorist. 
Yeah, I don't think it's a better movie with McQueen instead of Scheider. I think Scheider is fantastic. You know, this movie was, I think, originally budgeted at something like 15 million. He went over budget to 22 million. It was a pretty long shoot, as is Friedkin's want in that time. It was a pretty a lot of conflict on the shoot. In terms of it being a hit with McQueen, I just don't think it would have mattered either way, given what happened. You know, this movie comes out a month after Star Wars comes out right and that's the that's the nail in the coffin for these guys yeah i think it's interesting because it probably would have made more money with steve mcqueen but i don't think it would have been as enjoyable of a movie to go back to now and i think part of the reason why i love it so much and we we need to get into like the plot and everything to explain this but these four main characters are with the exception of roy scheider feel very anonymous and just kind of grotesque men that are in this situation and have to deal with an impossible task to get out of it. And so the kind of anonymity that they all bring to those parts, I think makes it a little bit more enjoyable to, for me. Roy Scheider sticks out a bit because he's recognizable, but not to the level that like Steve McQueen would have been in this, where you just have this like handsome man who's dealing with an impossible situation. Instead you get Roy Scheider who shows up in his first appearance already bruised across his face with a boxer's broken nose and just kind of is this wiry, malevolent presence through a lot of the movie. You know, anybody who's familiar with the um, treasure of the Sierra Madre can obviously see the parallels that are being drawn between him and Humphrey Bogart's character in that film. You know, he's wearing the same hat as Fred C. Dobbs, as the character Fred C. Dobbs wears in that film. And obviously Friedkin has pointed to that as being a, a very obvious reference point for this movie. I gotta say that, that, that Roy Scheider nose is on full display in this movie. He was like... Friedkin's, you know, fourth or fifth choice for this character, despite the fact that they had worked together very successfully in the French Connection, they had apparently drifted apart because uh, Scheider really wanted to be in The Exorcist and William Peter Blatty, who was the writer of that novel, and then one of the film's producers um, vetoed the idea of of Scheider in there. So apparently they were kind of, they, they weren't really speaking at the time, uh, but obviously Scheider was coming off of Jaws. So Scheider was... I believe Universal's idea, and it's weird to think that there was a time when, like, Roy Scheider was an above-the-title star, or at least was enough for a film like this. I do think it's interesting that they are also kind of equal going through that. I mean, Roy Scheider is obviously the star, but he is the last introduced of the four through the beginning vignettes, where the first is an assassination in Mexico, and the assassin gets away. The second is terrorist bombing in in Jerusalem, and one of the bombers gets away. The third is a French businessman who commits fraud and gets away after his brother, his brother-in-law commits suicide or something. And then Roy Scheider, who's the wheelman in a failed or somewhat successful robbery of a church and gets away from a scene of an accident. And all these men then just kind of end up faceless, nameless, on the run in this Central American town and have to figure out what they're going to do next. Thank you for going through all four of the vignettes, because like I said, the vignettes in this movie are so important, and they're clearly so important to Friedkin, because like I said, they were invented. They weren't in the book or the original film. As I've told Oscar many times, I love when movies have prologues that take place in an exotic locale that are distinct and separate from where the body of the film is going to take place. And Friedkin did this three times, or if you want to, maybe seven times, if you want to count all four prologues, right? He does it at the beginning of The French Connection. That movie takes place in New York, but it starts in Marseille. Then he does it again in The Exorcist. That movie takes place in Georgetown, but it starts in Iraq. And then he does it four times in this, Veracruz, um, Jerusalem, Paris, Elizabeth, New Jersey, and then um, eventually they, they end up in some fictional South American locale. But I, I just I love that that um, Freakin has like the patience and the discipline to be able to spend 25 minutes setting the table. You know, like he spends 20 percent of his two hour and one minute movie traveling around the world and setting these guys up. I, I love that. Let's get out of the way. I fucking love this movie and I'm glad we picked it. <laughs> Number one, this was a delight. A big part of that is how sort of just atypical the structure of this movie is and it just feels like something totally singular and unique if you look at the structure of this movie like it's, it's not crazy experimental in terms of you know getting the gang together and you know all these different outcasts have to band together for for a common goal but the fact that the first hour of this movie is usually the first 20 minutes of a normal movie that would have this structure right like they, they don't start their 
their trip until like an hour and five minutes in. Definitely past the halfway point, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And these four vignettes take up, like you said, about a half hour, maybe even longer of the runtime. And those scenes would usually comprise like a 90-second montage in a normal movie. Just getting to know those characters and just having these little short films that are pretty fun and exotic, like you said, on their own, it just sets the table for what is a bizarre and, and punishing but sort of kinetic and beautiful movie. I think it is interesting that like you spend almost half of this movie just going through the setup for this ride that they need to go on. And the ride, you know, I know we haven't talked about this yet, but like there is an explosion in an oil refinery 200 miles away and they need to get unstable dynamite to the refinery to put out this fire. And so they hire the cheapest men in town that can drive trucks, which are these four guys. And they're responsible for driving this dynamite that could go off with any vibration across 200 miles of jungle. That doesn't actually happen until like 45 minutes into this movie. They've just done nothing but set them up through vignettes, introduce like their lives in this town and how miserable they are and the fact that they can't escape from it without money. And they're just willing to do anything that it takes to get out. The movie is two hours and one minute long. We don't even get to South America until 24 minutes in. And we don't actually start driving the trucks until 64 minutes in. So like less than half of the movie is the actual trip itself, which I think kind of speaks to what Friedkin's really interested in, which is like kind of the internal and external struggles of these guys who are in purgatory. And he really wants to like hammer home why they're in purgatory and what purgatory looks like and smells like. This movie is so sweaty and so visceral, you can almost smell it, right? And I mean that as a compliment. You know, the way Scheider is clawing at his um, at his sheets when he's while well, he's having a nightmare. How, like, disgusting and sticky the communal bathroom that he has to go into to wash his face in the morning and just, like, the constant 5 o'clock shadow and the, the constant, like, sweat-soaked costumes. It's just, it's really, it's just raw. And you can, you can feel... Friedkin just delighting in this level of authenticity, right? Which obviously cost a lot of money and took took a lot to put on screen. It's 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 pretty jarring and kind of surreal to see you know Friedkin's like kinetic chaotic style, like a style we usually associate with a with an urban setting, and we've seen him use in an urban setting, like play out you know South American jungle type of landscape that's usually filmed in kind of a yeah, more lyrical, beautiful, methodical way. It lends itself to this is something very different, very weird, and, and off-putting and punishing. And he shoots it a lot more like a documentary, I think. And that really helps establish the setting and how miserable it is. This goes back to the casting. Like, all these faceless men that are kind of around the town and the basically, like, one female character that exists in the town are all relatively hideous. And it's kind of meant to amplify that feeling of them being stuck in hell and needing to get out at any point in time at any cost. It's, a, it's an all-time uh, CD remote bar. And everything just feels so lived in. And it's not just in that town, even like the French house that they're in for a moment or like the hideout in Jerusalem that the ter- terrorists go back to. Everything feels very real and very earned. And so I know you mentioned that he tried to shoot it in Ecuador and... The production company said no to that, but like he obviously put a lot of work in to find the locations to shoot this and it pays off. It looks fantastic. Again, I really recommend anybody who's interested in, in this film or in The Exorcist or in French Connection or in just Friedkin in general. I mean, the Friedkin Connection is just a, it's just a wonderful autobiography. And he's so he's such a good writer. And if, if you can listen to the audible version, I, I recommend it because he's so fun to listen to. And he talks in the book about how important it is for him to actually go to these places. And you really don't get that level of commitment on the part of auteurs nowadays, short of your Nolans or whatever, of actually globetrotting to shoot in these real places. And it was so important for Friedkin throughout his career. And he happened to hit at a time, and he was successful at a time, where he could convince studios to let him do this. And there's a whole chapter in the book about him having to convince Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers? I think it's Warner Brothers, to let him go to Iraq, where like no American film had actually gone and shot before to shoot the 10 minute prologue of The Exorcist, which is which a lot. And then he, he gets back and a lot of executives are like, what a waste of money that was. We don't need that scene. To me, it's one of my favorite parts of The Exorcist. And it was so important for him to actually be there in the desert, shoot it, you know, that level of authenticity. And the beginning of this film 
really like reinforces how important authenticity is to him to actually go and shoot in Jerusalem, to actually go and shoot in Veracruz. And then, yes, eventually they shoot in the Dominican Republic as opposed to Ecuador for financial reasons. I love the fact that it's a globe-trotting film, even though he probably could have potentially shot, I don't know, London for Paris or something. He, he's not willing to do that. He wants to be able to see the Arc de Triomphe in the background. Yeah, I mean, it's insane what this guy was able to get away with. You know, like just reading even the Wikipedia page, like there's a scene in this movie where they have to blow up a tree that's in the middle of the road uh, with some of their nitroglycerin, and it didn't work the first time with the with the first like stunt, you know, special effects guy. So he literally flew in an arsonist from the states named Marvin the Torch to get it done. Which is just batshit crazy. And Marvin apparently did a hell of a job. I mean, you can see it on film. But can you imagine anyone doing, like, flying in a convict these days to, uh, to, <laughs> to complete a special effects uh, scene in a movie? Seems like that was a bit of a, uh, of a theme on the set of this film, that he was not only having to employ some, some people of, like, dubious legal background, trying to do it the right way or trying to do it the legal way or trying to do it the normal way, failing and then having to bring in specialists like... Like you mentioned, Marvin the Torch. Uh, I was reading he also brought in Joey Chitwood Jr., who was a stunt driver, to successfully flip the car in the New Jersey. Apparently, they were shooting for like a week. They they flipped twelve cars. They couldn't get a single one to flip properly. They they were you know a week behind schedule, and so then somebody recommended this Joey Chitwood guy. He flies out to New Jersey and he does it in the first take. Yeah, they built that bridge for a million dollars and then couldn't use it because the river dried out and then Bill had to do another bridge and that cost another few million dollars, which is crazy. Yeah, um, why not uh, Why not just get right into it? It's the centerpiece sequence of the film. It's the most famous scene in the film. It, it might be one of the most intense action sequences ever put on film. You know, like you said, they, they basically had to build this thing twice. It was... It was built for a million dollars. It had a bunch of like pneumatic controls and stuff. Two trucks need to cross it, but they also need to be able to control the trucks and the bridge individually. And then the river that they were shooting over dried up because it was unseasonably dry that year. And they had to like completely deconstruct the thing and rebuild it in a different country. Um, so, but God bless Friedkin for sticking to his guns because obviously once the studio had spent a million dollars in this thing and then they weren't able to shoot it, he was being encouraged to like, can't, can't we simplify it? Can't we do something else? Can we just lose the scene completely? And no, you can't. It's the centerpiece sequence of the film. We're, what, 40-something years later, and it still makes my palms sweat watching these guys try and get these two trucks across a crappy rope bridge, and everything's just popping, snapping, twisting, and these trucks are barely able to get through each foot that they have to cross. Um, it's an incredible scene. It, like It's the centerpiece of all the obstacles that they have to overcome as they try and get to this refinery but it is by far the most memorable and it's the poster for the movie and that moment of Amadou I think you said was his name lying in on the bridge in front of the truck trying to guide it over in the rain as like branches are washing into the bridge is just an intense like build of so many different factors and perils that they have to deal with at the same time while at the same time managing this dynamite that might go off at any moment. It's incredible. It should be required viewing for any action director or action screenwriter. You know, it's not about velocity. It's not about, you know, the speed. It's not about anything but tension and stress and anxiety and, you know, how, how you, you don't need a, a million cuts. It is as exciting a scene as you'll ever find in the trucks going one mile per hour. I mean, it's it's truly extraordinary in, in, in any way. It's one of the most like nerve wracking scenes I've ever I've ever sat through. And and what's especially like grueling about it is that you basically have to do it twice, right? Because you got to get two trucks across it. So just about the time that you're like, oh, thank God we made it. And Roy Scheider is is um, he's celebrating and he's like, oh wow, all right, we're gonna get double shares. Then they just smash cut to the other truck that's all already halfway across the bridge and yet the second truck is even more grueling than the first because like you said all the branches and the bushes and everything and then they got to deal with the fucking winch and it's almost cartoonish how like over the top that sequence gets in terms of the amount of obstacles they're piling on and how ridiculous this bridge looks and they kind of build and lay a foundation for that tension earlier where they have to go around that one little complex corner and one guy's guiding the other one in the truck 
logs are kind of falling down the side of this cliff that they have to navigate. And all that is but an appetizer for this bridge scene, which just goes on also for like 10 minutes of trying to get these two trucks across the bridge. And that moment when Roy Scheider gets the first across and is celebrating and saying that there's no way the other group will be able to get theirs across and they're going to get double shares as a result is such a great moment because it makes you think for a moment that they're not going to be able to do it. And you're going to watch this truck topple over and explode in the river. I'm glad you you mentioned the fact that they sort of like lay the track a little bit when they're having to cross the I mean, it, it is it is a bridge or it's some kind of extension because the the corner they're having to turn is too thin. So somebody has built out like a kind of a, a log bridge extension or whatever. And that is grueling and excruciating itself. But you're right there. He's kind of like establishing a sort of process based filmmaking style introducing the idea that he's really going to be detail-oriented when it comes to how they're going to overcome these obstacles, right? Like, when I think about my favorite parts of this film, a lot of them are very process-based. In addition to the, um, the the bridge crossing, one of my favorite scenes is when they're building the trucks, which, and a lot of that has to do with Tangerine Dream, who is just, like, doing a lot of the heavy lifting in this movie. But I love the detail, the detail-oriented sequence of them going through and picking. And that is also not in the original film. In the original film, they have brand-new trucks. They don't have to do any of that. It's probably a good time to bring up the weird title for this movie, Sorcerer, which makes it seem very different than what it is. Sorcerer is just the name of the second truck. The first truck is named Lazaro, I think. And it's totally obscure even within the movie. And I still can't wrap my mind around why they went with that as the title. I've got a quote from uh, Friedkin here. The sorcerer is an evil wizard, and in this case, the evil wizard is fate. The fact that somebody can walk out of their front door and a hurricane can take them away, an earthquake or something falling through the roof, and the idea that we don't really have control over our own fates, neither our births nor our deaths. It's something that has haunted me since I was intelligent enough to contemplate something like it. Yeah, but even that doesn't make sense, William. <laughs> you know, a sorcerer has agency. You know, a sorcerer is a person who makes choices. That that it doesn't work. I mean, like Lazaro would have been better, right? Like raising from the dead or something. Like that would have made sense. Sorcerer was not a great title and a really bad financial decision on the title as well. I don't I don't disagree with any of that, but just to play sorcerer's advocate here a little bit. I mean, I agree <laughs> it's, it was a terrible marketing decision and people people were apparently like walking out of the theaters going, "What the fuck? Like I thought this was a supernatural movie. I thought this was a, you know, a sequel to The Exorcist or whatever. There's no there's nothing superna- supernatural going on." I do just like the arbitrariness of it. I like the fact that it's the second truck and spoilers, it's the truck that blows up and and just I just like how kind of like random and arbitrary and sort of throwaway the title is. I mean, it's a cool, fun, evocative title. It looks great on a poster, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the film. To me, it's keeping with the sort of personality of the film that the title doesn't really matter. And because you've kind of already spoiled the ending for that truck of it blowing up, like the random and arbitrariness is evident in that explosion too, where they're just driving down the road and blow out a tire and it causes the dynamite to go off. And it's actually like, during the first point in the movie where any of these four main characters interact and have a connection about their lives. Like, it's the first time they've discussed anything about each other. Up until that moment, they're just men doing a job with no backstory to one another. Like, we as the viewer have seen where they've come from, but they haven't communicated that to one another at all. One of the common themes in this movie is you will consistently be punished for any and all triumphs that you have, right? No matter what. No matter what you think you've done well, what job you think you've completed, you know, the hand of God is coming to smite you. I guarantee this movie would have made 25% more money if it was just called Dynamite Truck. Or just call it The Wages of Fear. Like, apparently when it was released overseas after its kind of abysmal failure here, they just released it as Wages of Fear. Like, just a straight Wages of Fear remake, which, you know, I guess is a more helpful title. Oscar, if this movie was called Dynamite Truck, they could release it on Netflix next week and it'd make a couple million dollars. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Keep those subs coming in. In my research, I, I came across this great video essay by a guy named Matt Draper, which I highly recommend. And it's all about Sorcerer's relationship to the writings of Albert Camus, you know, nihilism, the arbitrary nature of death, yada, yada. And he talks about Sorcerer's relationship to Camus, the myth of Sisyphus. 
and Camus introduced uh, this philosophical idea about uh, the paradox of the absurd. Life is inherently devoid of meaning and consequently absurd, but humans will nevertheless forever search for meaning. Camus compares the absurdity of man's life with the situation of Sisyphus, a figure of Greek mythology who is condemned to repeat forever the same meaningless task of pushing a boulder up a mountain, only to see it roll down again. I think part of the reason that this movie struggled so much to connect with people in the 70s, and maybe even is still kind of like struggling to find an audience today, is because it is just so bleak. Like you said, it's just like every single time there's anything resembling a triumph or a step in the right direction, life is just going to smite you, you know, it's just going to slap you right back down. And the film's commitment to that bleakness up until the very final moments, I just find really kind of inspiring in its in its bleakness and in its <laughs> darkness. I don't know. Maybe I'm a dark person. I don't really think of myself that way. But it's a commitment to the bit that I'm just so impressed with. Freaking saying... I, I believe in this and I'm committed to it and I'm gonna go down I'm gonna go down with this with this explosive truck. I had two people in mind that I thought would be the perfect audience for this movie or people that at least probably enjoyed it when it came out or soon afterwards. And I was kind of curious what you guys had in mind in terms of like who's the audience of this because in my mind I was thinking this almost felt like a prototype a proto Michael Mann movie. It's very bleak and men doing work. there isn't a lot of backstory when you jump straight into like the action of somebody being assassinated, these kind of like disparate locations, and then these faceless men coming to a different city where they have to get through some sort of arduous task. That feels very like Michael Mann to me, even like collateral or going back to even like Thief, where it's a man put in an impossible situation that they need to kind of get through. The other one, and Matt, you might disagree with me on this, is uh, John Carpenter. The bleakness of this feels very reminiscent of a lot of his work to me around the same time. Friedkin obviously has a lot more of like a kinetic style versus uh, John Carpenter, but I think that kind of bleak surroundings and settings and attitude towards success or life and happiness is something that feels very familiar to me from like Carpenter's work. I, I like both of those uh, comparisons. I mean, Michael Mann might be more sort of like these guys are reaping what they've sown a little bit, right? Like, they almost kind of deserve it in some way. I, I kind of felt, and I know this is sort of obvious, but it's sort of very Werner Herzogian, right? Like, the, just the, the treachery, unfeeling you know, work of nature is going to end you, no matter how you feel about it. But I don't know. I mean, Matt, this is a good question for you. And is this sort of thematic nihilism what makes you think this is the prototypical Friedkin movie? Yeah, uh, boys, there's so much going on <laughs> with all those questions that I want to I want to address all of it. Yes, 100%. Friedkin is an inherently cynical director, and I think Mann is a, a, as well. And maybe John Carpenter, although John Carpenter has a lot more irony to him, I think. Yes, I, I mean, if you look at his oeuvre, with the possible exception of some of the early stuff, like the night they raided Minsky's or the boys in the band, he hasn't really like locked into that cynicism or nihilism yet. But if you look at his best films, this French Connection, Exorcist, Cruising, which I revisited over the weekend, Killer Joe, To Live and Die in L.A., yeah, I mean, this guy makes fucking brutal, dark, cynical films, and and that's his. That's kind of his thing. That that's kind of his. It's kind of his lane. It's not surprising he's been married four times. <laughs> Although I tell you what, again, not not to keep going back to this book, but you listen to him, and he he's got a very kind of like sunny worldview. I mean, he's he feels like he's had a very great life and great career. He directs operas now all over the world and stuff. Like he's very he feels very fortunate. He feels very lucky to have had so much success he doesn't seem like a dark guy but he does he does deal with such dark subject matter i love the man connection because yeah the idea of just professionals doing work you know the guys who are just really good at their job thrown into extraordinary circumstances and yes you can't help but talk about michael mann and john carpenter without talking about tangerine dream and the incredibly influential soundtrack for this film I mean, like one of the early films to really lean into the idea of um, of an electronic soundtrack, which also might have been alienating for a lot of people in, this, in 77. Which is, I think, kind of the point, too, right? Like synth music is inherently a little impersonal and alienating and cold. Like incongruous to where this film is set and the subject matter, right? I think, isn't Halloween 78? I think Halloween is 78 or 79. I mean, I've never heard John Carpenter confirm this, but I have to imagine that he's influenced not necessarily by this score, but by Tangerine Dream, who already had eight studio albums before they scored this their first film. And then, of course, Thief, which I think is 80 or 81, 
also has a Tangerine Dream soundtrack. But when I think about this movie and this movie's kind of worldview, I can't help but think about They Live, but especially The Thing, the kind of dark, cynical, open-ended ending of The Thing, I think is very reminiscent of this. I mean, I think The Thing is more open-ended than this. There, there does appear to be something that is going to happen, <laughs> something negative that is going to happen once we cut to black at the end of this movie. But I do think those movies are very, they're of a piece. But yeah, in terms of in terms of just Friedkin and about this being kind of like the definitive Friedkin film or the quintessential Friedkin film, he has mentioned that he feels it is his most personal. It is his favorite of his films, allegedly. When interviewed about it, he, he, he sort of equates it to his own life and how he feels that he's like, lucked into or sort of like fallen into some things that he didn't necessarily deserve over the course of his career. Quote, I wasn't prepared for my success or failure. I felt buffeted by fate without any control over my destiny. That's one of the themes of Sorcerer. No matter how much you struggle, you get blown up. It's about revenge, vengeance, betrayal. That's how I feel about life. Life is filled with betrayal, false promises. Fate is waiting around the corner to kick you in the ass, unquote. Yeah, Yeah, maybe not such a sunny guy. But yeah, I mean, to me, this this feels like the one that he is just leaning right into and just owning. In in terms of his style, you guys mentioned, you know, the the documentary feel, especially in those early scenes, especially in the first 30 minutes or so, which I think is very, very evocative of something like, or very reminiscent, rather, of something like The French Connection. What's so important about Friedkin or what's so unique about Friedkin is that his films have this distinct feeling of being deliberately directed, yet somehow almost like captured in the moment. You feel as if you're watching a documentary being captured in real time, yet the films also feel like carefully calibrated and carefully designed. His films are confidently directed without ever feeling staged or polished. There's like a there's a spontaneity to them, and yet you also still feel like there's somebody with their hands very squarely on the very tightly on the wheel, right? He likes to explore humanity as ex- at its extremes, push to the limits of sanity, civility, or the capacity for abiding by the rule of law or moral imperatives. And I think all that stuff is just dialed up to 11 in this particular film. Just looking at it structurally, it's very experimental. There's almost no dialogue throughout the movie. Like we said, it doesn't adhere to any sort of three-act structure. Like The bleakness, like it, it never completes the chord, right? There's no triumph in the end. The good guys don't win. There are no good guys. Despite how much time we spend with all the characters in the movie, they are still sort of sort of anonymous. And we spend more time on things where lesser movies wouldn't spend any time on at all. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, going back to like the procedural aspect, the dude's putting together that little rock lever to blow up the <laughs> blow up the, the tree. I mean, they take their time. It's so methodical in that scene, yet it's so captivating. This is why I'm pretty excited for the series, maybe discovering some things I haven't seen because uh, it's just, this is like a breath of fresh air. It is really funny though. I feel like we're not giving a great sales pitch for this movie. I think all three of us love it, and yet we're talking about how cynical, mean, dirty, ugly, anonymous this movie is. It's a two-hour dirge. Watch it. Our enjoyable (laughs) scenes are like, they're putting together a truck. They're constructing this like rock mechanism to set off nitroglycerin. But all of this somehow has this like strange, hypnotic, mesmerizing, magical quality to it that... It's not just this movie. Friedkin somehow pulls that off in things like To Live and Die in L.A., where it feels very weird and stagey at times, but it, is, it sucks you in in a way and gains your interest and keeps you hooked on it for the entirety of the movie. And this movie, I like from start to finish, very few things are keeping my interest right now. And this movie kept it fully all the way through without question. Yeah, I had to watch it. I watched it twice over the weekend because I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I hadn't seen it in years. And I was just like, I watched it late on Friday night and was just absolutely just dialed in, blown away by it. And then I got up Saturday morning. I was just like, why not? Let's put it on again. Like, I just can't, I can't, I don't know. I find a lot of it like weirdly kind of soothing. Like you mentioned the whole, the process of putting together the contraption that they used to blow up the fallen tree, which actually is in the original film. It's a, it's a boulder in the original film, not a tree. All the individuals, like it's so detail oriented get to see um, Amadou sort of like rise to this challenge and it comes after this grueling sequence with the bridge and then you see Scheider just completely melt down it is so it gives me so much anxiety to watch Roy Scheider hack his way into the swamp and he just continues to insist that we can get the machetes out and cut ourselves and the rest of the guys are just looking at him like no dude no and yet he just keeps getting deeper and deeper into the swamp it's so 
it's so sad and it's so it just gives me so much anxiety i i, I kind of have a thing about bogs and swamps and standing water in general he he just keeps getting more and more deeper and more and more tangled and then there's this wonderful shot of amadou walking back from the tree and he's like all right i think i can clear it and just like that brief moment of optimism and then this wonderful long process oriented scene where they're all working together where all these you know they're representing nations from around the world coming together for a common goal it's just it's a masterclass of of a sequence like those three for me the building the trucks the crossing the bridge and then blowing up the tree are like the three i don't know most memorable sequences in the film and and, you know and the tree thing is like that whole scene is done with almost no dialogue a lesser movie would have had these guys having a, a heated discussion on what to do. One of them freaks out. But this movie does it all very lyrically with reactions from the guys. Roy Scheider's freaking out but not screaming and ranting or anything. There's so many choices Free can make that go against sort of crutches and cliches that you would see from, from lesser filmmakers in similar scenes. It gives us sort of an alien, unique quality that... Uh, is intoxicating. Just the, the level of discipline. Like you have Tangerine Dream scoring your film, but to choose not to overscore it. You know, like there is no score during the crossing of the bridge. There is no score during the building of the tree contraption. There obviously is during the the, the building of the trucks, but the the deliberateness and the the confidence with which the Tangerine Dream stuff is included at the perfect moments, I think is very sort of like demonstrative of how much vision Friedkin had for the finished product. What a stranglehold he had on this particular film. Whether people were interested in it or not, whether people like what he came up with or not, it's pretty clear. Like, I don't think this movie got away from him. I think it's just a movie that is, like, like we said, is kind of a little bit difficult to recommend. <laughs> but is is incredibly rewarding if you if you give yourself over to it. And this is a movie you have to give yourself over to. You can't watch this thing while you're making dinner. You can't be distracted. You can't be multitasking. You got to like turn the lights off and dial in. And that's not necessarily something, you know, everybody wants to commit to. I think that's a good place to start wrapping things up. Dan, Matt, you got any final thoughts here? The film was a huge flop, obviously. Uh, you know, as we mentioned before, it came out a month after Star Wars almost to the day and was such a flop that it ran at Mann's Chinese Theater for one week and then they booted it out of the theater and just brought Star Wars back because it was such an you know an unqualified disaster and only made about nine million worldwide based on its 22 million dollar budget and is one of the films that that scholars and historians point to as being sort of the beginning of the end of the American New Wave or the New Hollywood movement. And the other films that are often, Ben Goff and I talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Nashville. And he pointed to Heaven's Gate as like the end of the New Hollywood movement. I think he's right. But the films that I think really like led to that are Scorsese's New York, New York, which comes out five days before Sorcerer, June 21st, 1977. And is famously like when Scorsese was at the height of his coke mania and was a very expensive movie and was a big flop and then sorcerer uh, in in 77 and then heaven's gate comes out in 80 uh, which of course kind of like ends the idea of the american auteurs getting carte blanche and then one from the heart is francis ford coppola's flop in 1981 he, he made apocalypse now thinking it was going to be a flop it ended up being a huge hit he made one for the heart thinking it was going to be a huge hit and ended up being a big flop those four films i think are very important in sort of like Uh, leading to the end of New Hollywood. I think they're all interesting films in their own way, but Sorcerer is the only one of these four that I consider to be an out-and-out masterpiece. It really is a movie that has kind of gone through critical reevaluation over the course of the last decade or so, leading up to a big like Blu-ray re-release about six years ago. When Friedkin was touring the re-release of the film to different festivals and stuff uh, in 2013, he was screening these beautiful new prints and at the Chicago uh, Film Critics Association's first annual film festival, which he was in attendance at, Friedkin remarked that the film hasn't dated. It's set in kind of a limbo and neither the haircuts nor the wardrobes nor the sets have aged poorly, which I kind of agree with. Like it isn't necessarily a movie that's rooted in the 1970s. It's purgatorial, <laughs> if you will. It's interesting that you bring this up as like, the beginning of the end or the death knell for that like new Hollywood 1970s thing. And I know Friedkin's a part of that group, but this feels so much more to me like the beginning of 1980s. I know we kind of, I made the comparison earlier to like Michael Mann and John Carpenter, but 
like the Tangerine Dream soundtrack, the kind of nihilism that comes up in his films and I think was present in a lot of the 1980s. This feels like the start of something rather than the end of something to me. It's associated with like that death of the, you know, the new Hollywood movement, but I think it might've just been a little bit before its time in a way. Like if this had come out in 1981, maybe it would have been viewed very differently when audiences were a little bit more accustomed to synth soundtracks and, you know, nobody getting out alive. I mean, I definitely think it's ahead of its time, which is one of the many reasons that it didn't it didn't connect. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I mean, Friedkin has managed to, like, reinvent multiple times since this. You know, like, he does this, it's this huge flop. Then he does The Brinks Job, which is not a big success. You know, it's like him attempting a comedy, which doesn't really work. Then he does Cruising, which is not as big of a financial disaster as this movie is but it's like a huge like cultural and like critical disaster and like he's reviled after cruising right he actually had depths to sink to in terms of public perception sorcerer was just starting to um, suggest but then he's able to like kind of rebound and he still you know he still makes movies not very often but he's gone through he's had third and fourth acts in ways that some of his contemporaries you know your bogdanovich's or even your coppola's for that matter haven't really been able to do in the same manner as like he still makes films on occasion and they still it's still kind of a big deal when when Friedkin makes another movie and I'm just so impressed that he was able to sort of like weather the storm he managed to outlast a lot of those guys and make a movie with Shaq and that's really the most important thing in a career blue chips that's probably something we should discuss at some point I mean you know when I was thinking about this film and and deciding how I wanted to approach it and you had actually suggested this to me a number of times over the years, Dan, like you guys need to do an oeuvre series about Friedkin because he's so fascinating. I just couldn't quite wrap my brain around like doing all of the super obscure stuff. If we want to be true completists about oeuvre, he really is one of the more fascinating American directors, I think, you know, of all time, for sure, just in terms of the variety of his of his works, you know, Killer Joe and, and, and Blue Chips and Cruising and The Night They Raided Minsky's and Bug. And it's just, to me, I think this is his um, artistic high watermark, personally. I believe it's his apotheosis. All right. Well, that's a, I think that's a good place to, to wrap things up. I mean, TBD on the, on the name, maybe we'll take that offline and vote on it. You'll probably see the name in the, in the podcast that you've, that you've already listened to. Matt, I, I'm pretty, pretty stoked on, on how this went. And I think we should keep this going. What do you think? I'm excited. This was a lot of fun, guys. Thank you for, uh, thank you for being a part of it. All right. And Dan, thank you so much for, for joining us. We'll have you back soon to get you in that rare five-timers club all right matt you want to call the people to action here well thanks for listening if you haven't figured it out yet uh, we like movies but we also like podcasting and want to continue doing so if you liked what you heard please consider rating reviewing and subscribing follow us at wlm podcast drop us a line wlm podcast at gmail.com if you're interested in helping us keep the lights on visit we like movies.com and click on the donation link at the top spread the word tell your friends help us keep the conversation going for Oscar Dahl and Dan Kelly, I'm Matt Knudsen, and the degree of difficulty on this episode was... 79 out of 80, just sweaty ass sticks of dynamite. Dynamite.